When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, give me some gravy, Lee. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Chris Sinzak and Aaron Campbell. All right, welcome back to the only podcast that spells coronavirus with a K. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast. My name is Aaron Camaro. Joining me somewhere out in the world, I don't even know where he is, is Chris Sinzak. I'm uh, hunkered down in a bunker. How are you? (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm good, you know, just laying low, doing my thing, you know, just trying to stay away from the public, trying to do what they tell me and not breathe in the air from anybody else. Yeah, we're in uh, volume three now of our quarantine sessions, but a little bit of hoopla. This is episode 400. Yay. But we're doing something cool today because we know you guys are such big KISS fans and, you know, we don't ever talk about KISS, right? So what a great way to celebrate the 400th episode with just a big old KISS conversation. And, you know, thinking about 400 episodes of all the cool people and all the cool things we've gotten to do because of doing this show, one of my very favorite people that I've ever gotten to meet because of podcasting is joe polo so i think it's about time at 400 that we have him on the show with us hey guys what's going on so glad to have you on finally man it's been too long yeah now i have been on one time you guys called me for information you wanted like i think it was like my favorite record or something like that or favorite kiss song that was probably four years ago i don't even remember You sent me a text like, I don't know what time at night. You were like, hey, can we call you? I was like, yeah. And and that's how I got on Decibel Geek. That's awesome. awesome. Well, you've been nice enough to have have me on. And um, but it's been I've been a fan of Podcast Rock City since it began when it was the 20 minute kiss fix format. Yeah. Yeah. Way back in the day. Before we get back to all the KISS fun, let's go ahead and knock these out because we got some great ones this week. I'm talking about reviews. We love them. You can give them to us anytime you want to, and I want to read a couple of them to you right now. This first one's an Apple Podcast review. It's entitled Tommy Skio. It's got five stars, and it goes like this. Hey, guys. Only been listening for a few months. Great episode with Tommy Skio. I remember Tesla opening for Def Leppard in Birmingham, U.K., just awesome. After hearing this interview, I went back to Psychotic Supper and re-listened, and it's a super album. Great melodies and killer guitar tones. It's always great to relive an album after hearing an in-depth account of the creation and recording. I love you guys. Great chemistry, and say it like it is. Keep it up and keep rocking. And that comes to us from Jason Keaty via Apple Podcasts. From, like I said... Great Britain. How cool is that? Love hearing from you guys all over the world. I'm so glad you're still listening. And welcome to the new listeners and the old listeners and people that have been there for all 400. And 
If this is your first episode, thanks for joining us. I promise the quality will get better once we get back into the studio. Once we're out of quarantine. (laughs) Yeah. And we also got a Facebook recommendation. This one comes to us from Mark Carson, and he recommends the Decibel Geek podcast. Excellent podcast. I've always been a KISS fan. Since getting turned on to your podcast, I have found a new excitement about KISS and other groups, mostly KISS. Thanks for keeping it up. And that comes to us from Mark Carson. Thank you guys for leaving us reviews and recommendations. We really appreciate it. Those ones are awesome. Mark, I got a feeling you're going to like today's episode quite a bit. Yeah, me too. And uh, let's get to our Geeks of the Week. These are people that shared on Facebook and retweeted on Twitter. Last week's Quarantine Sessions, Volume 2, with Toomey and Ian from Diabolus and Podcastica. Hey, I said it right this time. Nice. And boy, was that a wild one. I don't remember much of it, but it was fun. (laughs) It was fun. And one thing I want to say is I noticed nobody had the courage to step up and challenge Chris Sinzak for the Game Show Championship. But we got Joe Polo with us today, and he's going to give it a shot. Yeah, I'm here to lose. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Geeks of the Week this week are James McElhenney, Aaron Baker, CGCM Podcast, Gino Ames, Scott Crouch, Rock and Ron Runyon, Decibel Geek TV, Kevin Williams, Jay Shabluski, Christopher Stokes, Sean Cullen, Todd Rogers, Dawn of the Rising, Kristen Schimbeck, Wayne Cross, Mike Tyler, John Phillips, Todd Cunningham, Mikhail Burrell, Simon Catshay Hargett, Samuel Wetz, James West, Eric Luzier, Keith Rockford, J.J. Max, William Elam, Jeff Taylor, Coxie, Ernesto Aguiar, Eladio, and as always, the, the Mooger Fooger. Even when we're miles Fugger. apart, we still nail the beautiful synchronicity of the Mooger Fooger. How could we ever mess that up? Thank you to everybody that shares and retweets each and every episode. If you want to become a Geek of the Week next week, all you got to do is share our KISS conversation with our good buddy Joe Polo this week, and you become a Geek of the Week next week. So simple, so easy. Okay, I have a Mooger Fruger story. Do you want to hear it? Yes, please. Okay, so it was at a rock, a rock and pod. I think it was. It might have been last year. It was me and Karen and the Mooger Fruger, and I don't remember who are, who else was with us. But we're walking through the parking lot after eating some hot chicken. Right? What's the name of that restaurant? Scoreboard. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Okay, I was I was we were walking in the parking lot of that restaurant and I was about 5 feet ahead of Karen and the Mooger Fuger and I must have just missed it by seconds because some smell from somewhere blew through and hit Karen and the Mooger Fuger and they almost threw up. <laughs> <laughs> and that was after a night of chicken and heavy drinking. Oh man. I don't know what it was, and I didn't get to partake in whatever their uh, experience was. Because yeah, I was like, I don't smell anything. And they were both like, what was that? Like, It was like a silent but deadly. Anyway, yeah. all right. <laughs> he's, a, he's a character, though, isn't he? Oh, we love the oh. Mooger Fooger. Yeah, he's amazing. Yes, he's a, he's a three-time participant in Rockin' Pod. We, lo- we love him and Mrs. Fooger. They're great people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. So we want to get to some uh, KISS questions. You guys ready? Yeah, I'm all I, about it. Let's I got go. Them, I got them all right here in front of me. Is it yeah. easier for me to read them? Yeah, go right ahead. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, the first question comes from our good friend David Stonich. And uh, he says, hey, buddy, I'll work on specific questions, but I'm most curious about makeup changes and instrument changes in the early days, especially Peter's makeup. I guess he's kind of talking about like the evolution of the Catman makeup because man, it's sure different on that first album than what it ends up being. Yeah, 
some uh, uh, according to the according to their all their books uh, like a makeup artist came in and and did peter's makeup that day and wanted it to be i guess tribal and uh, they never did that again no and yeah, I, know, I, I know there was um somewhere somebody dug up online it was like an african mask that had that actual design on it so it was it's something like a, it was a real thing and then I guess the makeup artist decided to redo that, but I can picture Peter in the dressing room the next day going, let me see if I can, oh, fuck that. It's too, it's too difficult. I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> a, I look silly. And how the hell do you do that? Like everybody else is ready to get on stage. Where's Peter? I'm halfway done. Hang on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know that uh, Paul Stanley, when he, when they were starting out, one of my favorite stories that Ace used to tell was, that at one point, Paul, when he was experimenting, he did just a big black ring around his eye, and Ace started laughing at him. And Paul's like, "What's so funny?" And Ace goes, "You look like Pete the Pup from The Little Rascals." Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's pretty cool. All right. Well, I got a question here from Simon Cat, and he asks, "How is it possible that Peter actually got worse over time? Listening to the first several albums, he was fine. Watching him unplugged." He got lost on 2000, man, and nearly fell off the throne at the end of Nothing to Lose. And then at the reunion tour, it was painful. He hit the cymbals like he was afraid they were going to hit him back. Any thoughts on this? I know that, um, I think there's a little bit of, well, he got, he definitely did get worse as the 70s went on. And I think some of that is a combination of probably drug use, ego, and thinking he didn't need to practice like he used to. And they just, he, you know, cause by the dynasty tour, he was pretty sloppy. Um, but like I, as far as the reunion tour, I think some of that was kind of self-preservation because he always had issues with, um, was it carpal tunnel and he would, you know, I think to be conditioned to do two hours a night for a giant tour, he was trying to pace himself and, and not injure himself. Um, cause if you watch the Brooklyn bridge performance that they did for MTV, they knew they were only going to do a short set and he just let it fly at that. And he sounded like the old school cat man on that. So I think it was probably more self-preservation than anything else. I agree. I, um, Paul in his book says the wind would blow and Peter's drums would play. That's how <laughs> they had, they had the triggers set up so light, you know, so he didn't have to hit hard. Yeah. That's a lot of sense. You got to last that long and you got to figure at that point. And I've always said, you know, Playing guitar is one thing. Being a singer, sure, you know, it's none of it's easy. But a drummer, you almost have to be an athlete to be able to be a drummer on tour playing massive shows, you know. In a band like Kiss, you're expected to give it all you got. So, you know, I could see how that would burn you out pretty fast. And then after doing it once and killing yourself about halfway through the tour, you probably say, I got to learn how to kind of pace myself for this shit to make it last. And not only that, I mean, if you go back, to 74 75 76 or the early depends on how early you know the first three or so albums but he was really a basher he hit hard he played hard and and i'm not gonna say he got worse as he I, i just don't think he had um the fire in his playing like he did when they first started out if if you watch let's say houston the bootleg I mean, I think he's playing pretty hard, but, and I never really thought that he was ever really like this clean, great drummer. I always thought he was kind of like sloppy, but that's what made us like Ace is playing. So it makes it awesome, you know? 
you know, and we kind of mentioned it even last week during the game show. I mean, talk about like 78 time. By the time they're doing the solo albums, if Peter really had the fire about drumming, he wouldn't be bringing out somebody else to drum on his album. He would have done some amazing stuff himself to be able to say, hey, not only is this my solo album, but it's also a showcase for my drumming. And he sure didn't do that. That's true. Never thought about that. Yeah, it's almost like he wanted to focus on his vocals. Yeah, it would have been nice if he had said, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to show the world what a killer drummer I am. That would have been a totally different album. Yeah, true. Instead, we got that's the kind of sugar Papa likes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I really like Peter's solo album. <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit it. That's okay, Joe. That's okay. <laughs> All the right. first step of a problem is admitting you have one. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that was right in the balls. <laughs> All right. Got a good question here from Andy Connors, our good friend. Coolest guitar for each original member and Peter's best drum setup. I think That's for, a tough one. I think I'm going to say uh, the last Paul, the classic phrase, Fraley. I like Paul's crazy looking Ibanez. Um, of course, the, uh, the axe bass. Can't beat that. And I think Peter's set up for Alive 2. I like. Those are all good. I would probably get for Paul. I always like the uh, the sequin flying V that he played around Alive 2 era. Yeah. Um, the Madison Square Garden show from 77. He plays that. Uh, for Ace, you got to go with the Les Paul, but I'll go with the black Les Paul that he played on the Dynasty Tour. I always love that one. For Gene, I always like the studded Spectre bass that he played around 77, 78. I've always loved the shape of that one. Yeah. And then for for Peter's drums, I kind of had a thing. I really liked his Psycho Circus drum setup. I thought it was cool. That was cool. But I think his I think it was the Destroyer setup, which was I think a white pearl set with I can't remember exactly what it it was like it was reflective in some way like sparkly it was white with sparkles i like that one and then for gene i I, i'm i'm sorry i know this is going to go against the grain but i really really love the bass he had that had from crazy nights i believe it was with his face painted on it oh yeah Mm. ace is always the 59 less paul and then paul you guys know as a Kiss fan, Paul Stanley really tries his best to like have the most flashy guitars. And the Fractured Mirror Ibanez is amazing, but I seem to always go back to the BC Rich Warlock that from Animalize Live Uncensored that had the Fractured Mirror. Gee. That one kicked ass pretty bad. Forgot about that guitar. That's yeah, a great that one. It is badass. I love that. Yeah. Good question. Shoot, yeah. All right. You ready for the next one? Oh, yeah. Here we go. This one comes to us from Steve Elliott. The high voice at the end of Come On and Love Me and in the chorus of Take Me. Is it Gene or is it Ace? Up to that point, Ace hadn't sung, and we didn't know what his voice sounded like, and I don't recall hearing that high pitch anywhere else that early. I'm pretty sure it's Gene on both. And actually, if you watch the Budokan show where they do Take Me Live, it's just so funny seeing this hulking demon going, Take Me! Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Gene as well. Yeah, because I remember 
geez, was it confidential? One of them video cassettes that came out back in the day had that live footage of Take Me On It. And I remember hearing it live for the first time and being kind of taken back of how weird that Take Me sounded, you know, when they're when they're doing it live because I think it's in the studio, obviously, it's sweetened up and it sounds good. It's part of it. But when they're playing it live, it, it's just, you know, out there raw. You can't fix it up. It's happening right now live. It sounds pretty terrible and it doesn't sound good going with it. And I was always kind of taken back by that. Like, wow, that song sounds so much worse live than it does in the studio version. But it's because Gene sounds so weird singing the chorus. Right. Well, one of the things I always wondered was... We were getting is something. I think it was right. I think that sound is right into a board or something. So I was wondering if it sounds better if you're like thirty rows back or in, you know forty rows back, where, where it all mixes or blends yeah. together, sort of out of the speakers. I, I always wondered that, but I agree. The first time I ever heard that, I was like, "Who is doing that?" It's just like the this high, and then when you realize it's Gene, you're like, "That's the line they gave him." <laughs> it uh, Mortal Kombat where you would burn up the other guy to go toasty. Ah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Damn, that's funny. I forgot all about that. <laughs> now I want to play some Mortal Kombat. Yeah, or watch WrestleMania. It's the same thing. I'm gonna watch it tonight. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that's perfect because here's a really good one, and that kind of ties in with that. This one comes to us from Aaron Baker. Oh my God, here's a good one. Why did KISS have a wrestler in 1999 to 2000 WCW instead of 1996-97 when the company was really rolling in cash? From what we know about Gene, money and marketing-wise, it would have made much more sense to make more money 96-97 WCW, especially with the reunion going on around that era. Sorry for the long question, just had to ask because I don't know if anyone who was in WCW at the time, if anyone would know. It's from Aaron Baker. Joe, I know you're a big wrestling fan. What do you know about the Kiss Demon? What did you think well, about that at the time? Okay. I just happened to be, as of, I don't know how long ago, but as of right now, we I am the only podcast to ever have Dale Torborg on the show. Nice. Um, and, and it was all because at the time when I was doing the show, I had this girl called the goddess of thunder, Lee Westy. Do you guys know Lee? Yeah. And she did the show with me originally and she was a workout buddy with Dale and he came on the show and told the whole story. Now I haven't listened to it in a while, but if, and I'm not a hundred percent sure either he told me this or somebody else involved told me, but apparently Gene ran into Vince and Vince said to Gene, Hey, you know, we should really do something in the WWE. And then apparently he called up Eric Bischoff in the WCW. Gene did and did something over there for some reason. And apparently Vince was super mad at him for a very long time. Why they didn't do it earlier. I have no idea. It would have made more sense. However, I bet it was the furthest thing from Gene Simmons' mind to have a professional wrestler until Vince McMahon said, "Hey, we should do something." You know? Yeah, I'll right. take my uh, I'll take my typical cynicism of Kiss and say that it was the band latching onto something that was a trend that was already on its way out. The WCW definitely was. As a yeah, matter of fact, man. that was 
the least viewed episode, I believe they said, of all time. Wow. Um, now, of course, I was watching it. It oh, was yeah, like when too. Falcons were in the Super Bowl the first year. Not the second time. We don't even want to talk about that. But the first time against Denver, when I found out that they were doing the opening, like they were playing the opening, I was like, I get the Falcons and Kiss in the same night? This is amazing. And right. then and then it happened with uh, the WCW, and that was awesome, too. I enjoyed that, but apparently they tried to squ- the powers in WCW tried to squash it really fast and uh, it never happened. So, yeah. Cause the way I always heard the story was that they were going to eventually, it was going to turn into a group. There was going to be a spaceman, a star child, a cat man and the whole deal. And there was going to be a group of kiss wrestlers as it was supposed to go. But I don't know. It's kind of a, you can try to put the name Kiss on anything, you know, and then to even say, wow, we can put it on a wrestling character. That is about as far band marketing as you can get, you know, to think, wow, this could actually work. But the thing was, is I don't know, it was kind of hokey to have a guy that would, I'm, I'm a wrestler, but I'm also a huge Kiss fan. And so I'm going to paint myself up like Gene Simmons and wrestle Eh, kind of a hokey gimmick, really, and I think it was hard for people to get behind. It was cool for KISS fans, but then the wrestler wasn't, you know, he wasn't killing everybody, he wasn't winning all his matches, and it didn't take long for him to become the guy that everybody beat. And then it was like, well, no, that's not cool. (laughs) The KISS guy's getting beat up every week. That's This isn't no fun. (laughs) Right. They had had an opportunity to make it... To make it fun, at the beginning of it, they, there was this, there was a specific wrestler that was going to do it. His name was Brian Adams, right. and he he was wrestling and he walked out. And as he was walking out, there was a there was a limo parked outside the place that he was walking out, and the license plate said "Kiss" on it. And the door opened, and he got in, and then you just thought, "Hey, this is going to be the guy," and somehow that didn't happen. Later on, he became like, I guess, like a lackey for this guy named Vampiro. And yeah. Vampiro was like this bad, you know, bad guy, dark, monstrous wrestler. And he and beat the, the crap out of the yeah. demon all the time. Yeah, it was crazy, man. The the whole thing, they just blew it. They, yeah, they blew it. <laughs> it was bad. All right, next question comes to us from Ross Feichert, our good friend here at the show. He asked the question, who did the better version to kiss, Prince or Tom Jones? Hands down, <laughs> Prince. Sorry, hands down. Did I say neither because I hate that song? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'll go with uh, Kiss of Death by Motorhead. Nice. All right, I'll tell you a cool. Now, there is a kiss tied a tie-in on this. Now, a lot of people don't know this story, but they had to be me in the right place at the right time or just in the right place at the right time. When they debuted that video, it was Martha Quinn, and I was all excited because I, like a lot of people, I'm a Prince fan. He's He was wonderful. He's, to me, still is wonderful. He, he's still putting records out. Anyway, <laughs> when, they de- when they debuted the song, she said, Here's a new song from Kiss called Prince. And then she went, wait, from Prince called Kiss. And when she said that, I perked up like, oh, this is going to be awesome. No. <laughs> oh, man. 
she got it all backwards, but that's a true story. I, I, I remember where I was when it happened, and uh, I was very, I was very excited for one second, and then disappointed immediately after. Wow, <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> it Martha Quinn. All mm-hmm. right. <laughs> Next question: Take these Kiss members in their prime and drop them into another band or project in which they would have excelled. Gene, Paul, Peter, Ace, Vinny, and Eric Carr. Ooh. Okay, I thought about this one for a minute, so I'll go first, and you guys just can chime in with me. For Paul, I would say Paul Stanley would have to be like a Frampton-style solo artist, where it's just Paul Stanley, he's got a band, these are his songs. I don't. I can't really see fitting Paul Stanley into a different existing band. Yeah. Yeah. You guys think anything where Paul would fit best? Maybe something along the lines of like Greta Van Fleet, where it's a Zeppelin type band. He could pull that off. Maybe something where he can really wail with his range. But Paul yeah, Stanley would Paul join got, Kingdom Come. Yeah, Paul Stanley with Kingdom Come backing him. I don't know, man. I think I'm one of those people that I think Paul could fit into. A lot of bands just depends. I think the way he sang or sings or sang, depending on what politically you're involved with the band, (laughs) you know, he used to sing one way in the seventies and then in the eighties, he changed, he got, he changed a little. I think he could have, I think he could have hung with anybody really. It's just, Whatever project he joins becomes Paul Stanley. Paul Stanley, right. So he would almost have to be a solo artist. Yeah, probably. I I agree with that that comment. Okay, so here's what I thought for Peter Chris because I was trying to think where where would you put Peter Chris? You know, at first I've been on a kind of a a Paul Rogers kick here lately, so I thought maybe Peter Chris in Bad Company, or how cool would it have been if Peter Chris would have been a part of the firm? But then I thought. What if Peter Chris would have became a country artist? <laughs> no playing drums, just singing like Kenny Rogers style songs in the early eighties. Would that have worked? This is a a, Ken, a Kenny Rogers style uh, Chris Gola. Yeah, like wearing a cowboy hat. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to invent. There goes Chris peeling out. You guys hear me? Yes, I hear you now. Along right. with that guy who is compensating for something with his fifty-inch tires and his. <laughs> oh, you know his penis is humongous. Come on. Are we still talking about Peter Chris? Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> Boom! Oh, Aaron with the save. <laughs> And there's a dog barking. There's Vinnie Vincent around here somewhere, too. Oh, oh. No. bringing it back down. Yeah. So, Chris, where do you put Peter Chris at? I think the country idea is not a bad one because, I mean, have you ever heard Peter Chris's Budweiser commercial that never aired? Yeah. I think so, but it's been a while. But, yeah, I guess you're right. But it had, like, a real country vibe to it. I could see him doing something like that. He was trying to do that in the 80s when he was based out of here in Nashville. Yeah. So he should have jumped on that right away. I got the perfect answer for Ace Frehley because this hit me the other day. I was listening to some Meatloaf because I had never realized that Meatloaf one time sang on a Ted Nugent album. 
And I got that album, was listening to it, and I was like, damn, these Meatloaf songs are badass with rock guitar behind it. And so that actually got me to pull out my uh, Meatloaf Bad Out of Hell CD because I ain't listened to that in forever. And so I was checking that out, and I was thinking, you know, if you get rid of the saxophone player on these songs and put Ace Fraley in that spot, Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell becomes the greatest album of all time. Greg Troyan agrees with you. No, because he would never put Ace Fraley into Meatloaf, and he probably would consider that sacrilege, me saying that. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. But think about that. Ace Fraley in Meatloaf, in the place of all the stupid saxophone solos, you got ripping Ace Fraley guitar solos. How great would that album be? Can you imagine? I'm, like, <laughs> I'm sorry, but wasn't Bob Kulik in the live band touring for that tour? Yep. Yeah, so was Bruce. So he would have taken, he could have taken Bob's job again. See, and there <laughs> it is, and that's why it's perfect. That's so funny. Ace walks in, and Bob's like, "Son of a bitch, not this <laughs> guy. This guy too again. funny. This guy with the sneakers." <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you one thing. I think, I think Ace Fraley could have been a new wave artist because if you listen to any of those demos from the '80s, they were great. Yeah. Stuff like audio, video, stuff like that. I think he could have been a new wave artist with some keyboards and everything. Well, you could tell then that Arthur Sneed that he was writing with for those sessions, like that they recorded at the uh, Power Station in New York with all them songs on it. That guy was pretty new wave with the way he was playing yeah. keyboards on a lot of that stuff and a lot of the songs that would end up on Fraley's Comet. I mean, I could see Ace Fraley, you know, elevating the cars and making them better. Well, his voice was just you know, quirky enough to fit, too. What do you say, Joe? Where does Ace go? Ace could go. I mean, it has to be, in my personal belief, it just has to be rock. I mean, it's just, it's hard because I, when I hear Ace, when I think of Ace, I think of, of his specific sound and, and it work in other places. It's tough, but maybe, uh, maybe like, Damn. Maybe like the firm? Replacing Jimmy Page? Well, would he be replacing Jimmy Page or about, would he have already been in the band? How about okay, a, a you guitar see what duo? Ace Frehley and a guitar duo with Jimmy Page. Oh man, that sounds sweet. That would make that album so good. There's like if, two good songs on that album, I think, but that would have just knocked it out of the park. Would have made it really thick too, like yeah. two badass Les Pauls through Marshalls. Yeah, I like it. All right, for Eric Carr, I think I didn't have to think on this too much. I know where he'd be awesome. He'd be awesome drumming for Ozzy. Yeah, he he could have played for anybody. Right. But when I thought about Eric Carr, I thought I want to put him in something that's already big and making money where he can just step right in and maybe bring it up a notch, just a little bit, something to give it a little extra oomph. Ozzy's always had the best drummers around, but how cool would it have been to look back in like Metal Edges over the years and see Eric in all the pictures of the Ozzy Osbourne band over the years? It's true. Shoot. Eric's playing style, I think, would have fit in Metallica. Oh, yeah. Especially, yeah, especially that Black Album stuff or even Master of Puppets. Yeah. Chris, what say you? Where's Eric Cargo? Um, I would say Metallica is a good idea. I think St. Anger would sound a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. 
But uh, I don't know. It's funny. That's interesting to think about because, you know, if you believe what you've heard, had he lived, he may have left the band or gotten fired by the band. And I could have seen him. He could have comfortably moved into Ozzy's drum chair as much as it changed over the years. Yeah. He probably brought some consistency to the position. Yep. Speaking of like Metallica, thinking of Vinnie Vincent, I kind of think along that same route. What what would Anthrax be if Vinnie Vincent was in that band? What about Megadeth? What about, uh, you know, just any? I'd love to see Vinnie Vincent in a thrash metal band in his at his peak in playing skill. I think he would have been amazing in Bob's Bar Mitzvah cover band. <laughs> um, I think that he would have made that a great band, and we would have never heard from him. So that's how I feel about that. Wow, how do you really feel, Joe? Yeah. <laughs> I'm still waiting on my box set that I was supposed uh, to get two years yeah. ago. So, two well, of them, as a matter of fact. Yeah, let's say you're, you're owed two of them at this point. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, I'm I'm still on a countdown to December when I said uh, that would be three years since the announcement. I believe. So let's go get it done. He listens to you guys. I know. So <laughs> guarantee fucking tee it. I, I think. <laughs> I think the shredding thing is a good idea, but I, as far as what he likes, uh, he probably, he could have fit comfortably on some of that AOR rock of the eighties, you know, a lot of poppy stuff. I, I could have seen him. I could see him do stuff like that for sure. Like joining up with Michael Bolton or something. Yeah. It's hard to place these guys in existing bands. Cause they're just, they're so unique on their own. It's, it's hard to imagine them with somebody else. And I think Gene is the most difficult out of all of them. Like, you kind of figure, well, Paul could do this, Peter, Ace, you know, these guys could all do these things. But Gene is really tough to place in a band. But this is what I was thinking. So Blackie Lawless always said he didn't really like playing bass. He felt more comfortable playing guitar. So you move Blackie Lawless to rhythm guitar. You put Gene Simmons on bass. They become a songwriting duo and they each sing their own songs and then help each other sing songs. So Wasp becomes a collaboration mainly between Gene Simmons and Blackie Lawless. What do those albums sound like, huh? Mm. That's they would change the name on. from WASP to EGO. No, you just put WASP, <laughs> but the, the S becomes a dollar sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think Gene could have... I think. Man, if Gene had the opportunity, he could have played in any Motown band. His bass playing, that was really a lot of influence of him was R&B, Motown. He loved those walking bass lines and stuff like that. And I think I think he's one of the most underrated bass players. Just, he's really good, especially in those first few albums. Yeah. After that, for some reason, he decided to lay back and just kind of stay in the pocket a lot. But I always thought... When you listen to his bass lines in those first few albums, he's he uses the whole bass. Yep. Yeah, he's definitely Gene, way better than he gets credit for. It's hard to imagine Gene with anybody else, but um, hmm, I like both ideas. I don't know when I think of Gene, I think of like a like a Motorhead style band, but then you can you can't replace Lemmy with Gene, so that wouldn't work. But uh, I don't know, maybe ACDC. He would fit fine for his pocket blank. He could fit in that band pretty good. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're right. It's very hard to choose bands when we know how they play and we know how we set how they sound. It's almost like you would have to hear them play before you ever had a chance to hear them play, if that makes sense. So you right. could go, oh, well, look, their style is 
this, it's not a lot of. It depends on their range. Right. Could have been interesting little fantasy booking right there with rock and roll. All right, next question. Actually, it's kind of more of a statement, I guess. Uh, it comes to us from Neil Johnson. Destroyer is frequently cited as the band's creative masterpiece. For years, the band would compare whatever album they were currently recording to Destroyer. I remember them doing this while promoting Crazy Nights, which I don't hear at all. I remember that, too. No doubt, Destroyer is a phenomenal landmark album. But I would also contend that of the first six studio recordings, it's the least representative of who the band was. I'd argue Dynasty was more of a Kiss album than Destroyer. Discuss. Bold statements. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I do definitely remember, like, over the years, it seemed like every album that came out, Kiss would say, this is going to be the next Destroyer, you know? And that was always, like, their landmark. Like, th- that was our biggest thing we ever did, so we're always going to say that. Destroyer, to me, I mean, there's some great stuff on there, but in a way, it's not really really representative of Kiss, like Neil says, because it's really Kiss... And it's also, you know, the producer that had such a huge part in that. And really, I mean, Bob Ezrin really changed the band for that album. You know, it it almost is a collaboration more than it is a Kiss record. So, like, the first couple albums, that's totally Kiss. That's them writing the songs, them figuring it out, them doing it on their own. When you got a personality and somebody that wants to enhance what you're doing in so many different ways, like a Bob Ezrin does at those times, I mean... Geez, this is the guy that did the wall, you know? It's it's unkiss like to work with somebody like that, but it's hard to argue that that wasn't their big breakthrough album. It was if it was riding the coattails of Alive or if it was that was what people really loved or if that was the power of Beth. I think a lot of people remember Destroyer because it was their first album when they were kids because their mom heard the song Beth and said, "Okay, I guess you can get Kiss records after all." So I don't know. I mean, Neil makes a good point in that. I think. I think I would like it if I if they would if I would have ever heard them say, "This is our next rock and roll over." To me, that was always the most Kiss like album. They sound like the first few albums, but meatier and beefier. And the Destroyer to me is too clean. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with Joe. I I think that. Rock and Roll Over is kind of the pinnacle of them sounding like them. And they finally got to really work with Eddie Kramer on a studio record. And it, it's also, they became better players around that time. The songs are a little bit more cohesive. So I would go with Rock and Roll Over. Yeah, but there's definitely still no denying that, you know, the imprint that Bob Ezrin put on them. You talk about, you know, by Rock and Roll Over, they're better players. That's got a lot to do with what they were put through to create Destroyer. I think the creation of destroyer makes kiss better players because of it but then you look at it too like okay so they come out with destroyer and it's this big bombastic you know really sort of overproduced thing but then when they come out of that and they go to the next studio album which is rock and roll over it's right back to basics kiss so then it shows just how much of an influence bob erzerin really had on the band when you see the difference between Destroyer and what they do immediately after that. That's true. Yeah. I mean, he definitely, he definitely made them work harder than they ever had before. So I'll give him that. But I do agree that Destroyer is more of a Bob Ezrin project than a Kiss project. I agree with that. I think Bob took songs and made them his own rather than their own. 
and they just went along with it because it was good. (laughs) But it was completely different, completely different as far as if you go and you listen to Dress to Kill and then you slap on Destroyer, you're like, these are completely different kinds of writing, you know? It's like, to me anyway, and... You know, and when Neil Johnson says, you know, he'd argue Dynasty is more of a Kiss album than Destroyer, in that way, he's really right. I don't know if I'd go that far, though. I think Dynasty was more of an experimental thing. I don't I don't know that I'd say it's... Well, I don't know. Take, take they brought the Paul in Paul Stanley songs. Yeah, but I mean, it was also Desmond Child was brought in for I Was Made for Loving You, and then... I don't know. I mean, it's. I guess it is more of a more of a group effort. I guess, except for Peter. Yeah, except minus Peter. Right. Chris, yeah. <laughs> All right. That's a good question. All right. Here's the next one. This one comes to us from Scott Croach. What if Kiss never did the '90s reunion and Carnival of Souls was given a proper release? They would have played theaters. They it wouldn't have succeeded. I don't. I love the record, but I don't think it would have done much for them. I agree. I love that record. I. Fight me. I'll, I'll tell you right now. It's it. That is heavy. That you put that record on, and I know that Paul is like he pans it all the time. But I'm like, damn, dude, this is. And of course, you're like you said earlier. They're chasing the you know what's in, and they're late to the party. But that album just kicks ass to me. Yeah, I wouldn't fight you over that. I agree with you 100%. I love that album. When that came out, that was something where my friends that were into Pantera and Metallica and all these hard rocking bands, and you know, I was into all that too. This was a Kiss album that you could play for them and be like, check this out. And they'd actually go like, damn, that's Kiss. That's actually pretty damn cool. You know, it's a heavy ass Kiss album. And I've been telling Chris, we've been talking about this VIP a little bit, I think, but, uh, I recently turned on my father-in-law, who's an old-school Kiss fan, to the Carnival of Souls album, and he just fell in love with it. He like he couldn't believe it was Kiss. I remember uh, times over the years I'd be playing that, and somebody would say, "Is this Kiss?" You know, like an older fan, be like, "Hell yeah, it's Kiss." And I don't know, for, I don't understand. Like, if people don't expect it to be Kiss, they love it. And if you're a hardcore Kiss fan, sometimes you just don't like it because it's so far from what Kiss is known for. But Carnival of Souls is like the best parts of Revenge and then more of it. I love Carnival of Souls. Yeah, me too, for sure. Yeah, I, that was one of the most recent things I went out and tried to find on vinyl. And when I found it, oh, I opened it and slapped it on the record player as fast as I could and listened to it two or three times now in the past probably two months just uh, just because it's so – I don't know, man. I, it's one of those things where they screwed up when they said – they screwed up with Paul when they slapped grunge in there and uh, you know the word grunge. To me, it's nothing like Alice in Chains – and and some somebody out there might be going you're crazy it sounds but i don't hear alice in chains or and i don't hear grunge when i listen to it i hear a heavy kiss record no there's definite there's definite attributes of alice in chains and some of the stuff i mean they that's why they went after toby to produce it because he had worked with those guys i mean they that's what they were going for they'll admit to it um but it it also comes off sounding a little bit more like sabbath than alice in chains now that I would say more than than Alice in Chains, I just I don't know. I, you slap Paul's voice in there and Gene's voice in there, and 
And that's what makes it kiss to me. I always heard it as like an extension of unholy. Like that's agree. Un- unholy should have been on Carnival of Souls. It would have fit better on Carnival of Souls than it would on Revenge. You know, unholy to me was always like the standout song on Revenge. And then when Carnival of Souls came out, I was like, oh hell yeah, this is awesome because these songs sound more like my favorite song on the previous album. Yeah, yeah to me, it would. It sounded. If if you would have never told me what they were shooting for, I would have said, "Well, this is obviously a natural progression from Revenge." Just listen to Unholy. Right. They said we could go one or two directions. We can go Unholy, or we can go <laughs> uh, take it off. See, I knew you were going to be funny every time I look at right. you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> See, there is none of that on Carnival of Souls, and that alone makes it one of the best Kiss records. all right next one this comes to us from chris dunnett he's a cool dude i like him my question would be as successful as i was made for loving you and heaven's on fire why did they not work more with desmond child like bon jovi did well they actually did though i mean there's a lot of stuff through the years that they did with desmond they the stuff wasn't released as singles but there was there's i mean he Desmond Child also helped write some heavier stuff for them. I think Under the Gun was a Desmond Child co-write, and also uh, Thrills in the Night was one. Also, uh, was it uh, You Love Me to Hate You from Hot in the Shade was a Desmond Child song. You know, he, they wrote with him several times on stuff. It just none of a lot of the stuff didn't get released as a single. Yeah, Desmond Child was key to. I mean, I was made for loving you, and of course Bon Jovi's hits, but. They just didn't get the single release. It, it, had they, who knows? Yeah, because every one of those songs, even though they were some of them were you know deeper cuts on the albums, a lot of those songs could have fit in with what was being released at that time as far as singles from bands like Bon Jovi and Poison and Winger and bands like that. So I don't know why not. He's too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> you guys interviewed him. That was, to me, oh. I've probably listened to that three times. That's one of the best interviews I've ever heard. He's so good, and you guys were great. So, I mean, and I'm not blowing smoke right here. I'm just telling the truth. I was so excited when you guys got that interview. I listened to it on the way to work. I listened to it on the way home in the same day. I was like, I can't believe we're getting this deep with this guy, you know? Yeah, that was awesome. The thing I always remember about that interview was – him trying to steer it one way and us continually steering it to another direction and that direction is of kiss right yeah every time we'd bring up kiss he'd try to steer it to bon jovi or aerosmith but we we (laughs) stuck to our guns and kept turning it right back (laughs) yeah but he was cool it was it was a an honor to to talk to him and it was cool to actually get to see his studio and everything and see all the platinum awards and stuff it was fun that's awesome yeah, I really like Desmond. All right, let's see what else we got here. From Grayson Galagos, he asks, Paul wrote one song unassisted in the 80s, Tears Are Falling, yet he's often credited by his fans as being a brilliant songwriter who single-handedly kept the band afloat during the 80s. What would mid-80s Kiss have been if Paul was the one doing movies and Gene was holding the band together and was the main songwriter? I don't think Paul, I don't think he got the credit for holding the band together because of his songwriting. I think he got 
credit for holding the band together because he stayed he kept going with the band while Gene was kind of running away. That's true. Yeah, very true. Yeah. That's why, you know, that that Smashes comes out, he puts himself right in the front. He decided that's how I'm going to do it. Uh, this is my band now. I'm going to be the front man. Used to be everybody together. Now when you look at Smashes, he's out in the front in the picture. Yeah. And I don't think it had anything to do with his songwriting. I think it had to do with the fact just that he didn't give up. His and Gene was, he had ideas of other things. Yeah. I if, if Paul was the one doing movies and Gene was there, I, oh boy, what would the song, it would be a lot more songs about logs and fireplaces, I guess. Yeah. Yep. I think, uh, I guess, Kiss would then become, like you said earlier, Chris, more of like a Motorhead-type band. Probably been a lot heavier. Probably no ballads. I think they'd have been kind of like a Motorhead or a Wasp, where it's real hard-edged, controversial lyrics. And, uh, yeah, definitely not radio-friendly at all, probably. And like you say, a lot of double innuendos. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good question. I never really thought about it like that. All right, let's see. We got a bunch here. These are great. Okay. The albums got significantly worse according to general consensus when Gene took a back seat. When Gene returned to the fray for Revenge, an album regularly referred to as one of their best. Does this actually mean Gene is far more crucial to the band's success than many fans give him credit for? That comes to us from Aaron Philpott. Mm. I think that he's crucial to the team. You take Gene out, the team isn't the same. You put Gene in, the team's the same. You take Paul out, same thing's going to happen. Right. This is my opinion, but you take Paul Stanley and put him where Gene was, just like we said in the last one. The band, I don't know, man. It's That's a, that's a really tough question and one of those things where you really got to assume a lot of things, but... Gene's important. He he absolutely is. You can see where I'm going with this. You, you take Paul Stanley and put him in Gene's spot. The the music isn't as good as when they work together, right? Or or when they're when they're putting an album together together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with that 100 too. Because I mean, obviously, yeah, Gene is very very crucial to the formula that is Kiss. You know, I hate to say it, but Ace Frehley, Peter Chris. They came, they went, you know, they were replaced. The band went on, you know, if Gene leaves, I don't see him as being able to be replaced. If Paul leaves, I don't see him as being able to be replaced and the formula can't be the same without him. So yeah, definitely Gene Simmons with Kiss. I mean, it's gotta be without him. It's, it's not really Kiss. It's true. Yeah. I can't imagine them without, without either one of them, but like it, I mean, I, I still, I still will say that Gene's 80s songs, of course, everybody loves to poke fun at Burn, Bitch, Burn. I just did it a minute ago. But I still think a lot of his 80s stuff has aged better than a lot of Paul's stuff has. I think a lot of his stuff was a little bit more true to who he was, rather where Paul was basically trying to chase Bon Jovi and bands like that and trying to get whatever was flavor of the week. And some of that stuff sounds incredibly dated now, but some of Gene's stuff from the 80s, I think, still holds up as good, solid rock and roll. Well, if Gene's so busy trying to make it in Hollywood, he's not really listening to music, so, you know, he's not being influenced by what's going on, so he's just writing Gene Simmons songs. True. Good question. All right, here's another good one. This comes to us from our good friend James McElhenney, and it goes a little something like this. 
I've noticed Sonic Boom isn't available on my streaming service. Seems odd. It's the only studio album not streaming. Not my favorite, but I do have the CD and there's some good songs on there. Plus, kind of like the re-recorded bonus CD too. Just wondering, you guys rock. Yeah, what's up with that? Why is Sonic Boom the only one not available? Owned by Walmart. They own it. Oh, yeah. So, that's right. The only place you can get it at the time was Walmart. You can't get it on iTunes. You can't. All you could do is walk into Walmart and get it. And and to this day, at the Walmart where I live, which is a small town in Georgia, we still have a couple copies. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and they're yeah. $9.99. I bought one recently, man. Out here in the country, I rode up there on my four wheeler. <laughs> <laughs> that explains it. I, yeah, that's the that's the truth. And I mean, I I still like the record, but uh, but yeah, I wonder if that was short sighted on their part to where it's like, although they probably don't care about streaming services because they're not really making any money on them anyway. So right. they got a massive advance from from Walmart for that record. So and actually, my cousin was one of the head people in PR at the time, and she actually worked one-on-one with Paul and Gene on putting that whole thing together. So I, I've heard a lot of stories about the making of that record. Man, if you go, if you, at that point, if you walked into Walmart before the record came out, the flyers that like where you would buy, look at TVs or whatever that they hand out, they, Kiss was on the TV in the flyers. Yeah. It's like they really, they made a Kiss corner. They, they sold yeah. Kiss merchandise. Yeah. Which, which, by the way, every store should do. I should be able to go into Victoria's Secret and buy a Kiss record, but the <laughs> <laughs> only the, in a perfect world. Yeah, can you imagine that sight? Me walking in, hey, hey, nice thong. You got the elder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's the title for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> nice thong. Do you have the elder? Nice. Yeah. You're welcome for that. Um, but. Walmart's the answer. At any moment, could they, because you guys will know more about this, at any moment, could they go, hey, we're going to put out vinyl? Have you guys been noticing all the bootleg Sonic Boom vinyl that's coming out? Uh, it's everywhere. Everywhere. Bootleg. I bought one. <laughs> oh, because that's, that's the only way you could get it. Yeah, unless you want to spend $300 on a original copy, which, eh. Nope. No, I'm not paying three hundred dollars for Sonic Boom. No, thank you. No, nope. I'll pay sixty to get a colored vinyl, purple. So they actually did release that on vinyl in limited edition or something when it first came out. Yeah, yeah. gate gatefold with a poster and oh, wow. everything. But if you want it, eBay is brutal. Wow, I did not know that. Let's see. Up next, we got one from Scott Payne. And he asks, was a reunion with Ace attempted around 1989? It was talked about. I know that I do know that much. I mean, we actually asked Bruce when we interviewed Bruce about this. And he, I mean, they didn't tell him anything at the time, but I've heard that they were in talks to bring Ace back to do a, a reunion in makeup with Ace and Eric Carr. But I mean, how far it got, who knows? Yeah, I remember Bruce saying something to the effect of he always knew and was always aware that that was always a really good possibility. Like that could happen at any time. And that's why he wasn't that surprised when they finally made the announcement in the nineties about the reunion, because he'd been expecting it all along. He always looked at kiss like, well, all it takes is Ace Frehley to come back and this is over tomorrow. Yeah. 
I think that if Ace would have joined the band then and Bruce would have been out with Eric, that would have been with Eric, right? Yeah. So, yeah. man, imagine those shows. Oh, man, so good. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, the, the, you know, the things that didn't happen <laughs> that could have happened. I mean, even a reunion in 89 without the makeup would have been pretty badass. Oh, yeah. But I, don't, I don't think it would have had the demand that it wound up having in 96, though. I think they had to wait just long enough for it to work out. But I always kind of got the feeling, too, that, you know, Kiss had wanted Ace Frehley back since the moment Ace Frehley left. But then you got to figure after a while, it becomes kind of a, a thing of contention where you go, okay, well, that's not happening. Screw him. You know, it's not happening back on our own. We're not begging no more. You know, so because you got to figure even even Ace Fraley versus Peter Chris, it wasn't so easy with Ace leaving for the fans as it was with Peter, because Peter's immediately replaced by somebody awesome who has their own makeup, their own persona is super cool. And you liked him. Everybody liked Eric Carr. Nobody said, Oh, I hate this guy. I want Peter Chris back. I mean, I'm sure some people did, but Eric Carr was a pretty likable dude. So then Ace Fraley gets replaced by a slew of different guitar players. So of course, over the years, every time somebody asks Gene or Paul a question, odds are the first, or the second question asked is, why don't you guys get Ace Frehley back? You know, and how long, how many years of listening to that, you're going to do one, one of two things. You're going to say, ah, they're right. You know, we really do. Or you're going to say, screw that. You know, we're not doing it. So I, you always kind of wonder inside their heads, what, what is the timeline and the feelings about with Ace Frehley? I mean, would they have taken him back at any time had he wanted to do it or had been up for doing it? Well, it's would he be up for doing it? That's the big question. Because I think they wanted him, but they were always wary of his substance abuse. Yeah, he had problems. Big time. <laughs> yeah. I think that if the way, if you listen to Ace Fairly talk, if the money's right, he'll do anything. So if there were talks about it, what made that fall apart? Probably money. Yep. Yeah, you're probably right. You know, at that point, because Gene and Paul always said, you know, we held it together. We kept Kiss alive. You left. Now you're not as valuable anymore. I don't think they, during the reunion, they didn't get paid fair share, did they? No. And while that was part of the, the Ace and Peter's books explain it, where they Ace and Peter starting out got the same amount, and then Ace pushed for more money, and Peter didn't know about it. And that caused the falling out with Ace and Peter. Yeah, and 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 just they they got the same amount Peter and Ace did. They did not get what Gene and Paul got, right? Right. So I think it was like seventy thousand a show is what Ace said he was making. I was like, I can't even imagine making seventy thousand dollars for two hours work. Now, don't get me wrong; he's put in time to make that, but that paycheck was for that show seventy thousand dollars. Good grief. I'd have 10 Kiss pinball machines. (laughs) (laughs) I just want one still. I'll never get one, but that's my dream. Anybody want to give me a job to make $70,000 for two hours work? We're down. I'm down. Depends on what it is, though. That's the disclaimer. (laughs) Joe will do anything, and he means anything. Anything. (laughs) 
Oh boy, you're about to get a whole lot of new Facebook friends. That was my 37. 37. You have to be. You have to be cool to get that joke. So I got it. All right. All right. Uh, let's see what do we got next. Ah, here's a guy we know and love, Thorborn Olson. Wonder if you know the location where Kiss, under Sean Delaney's supervision, evolved their stage presence in 1973. The rehearsal space Sean used used to claim he owned and Kiss was using the second part of 1973. You guys know that? I don't have that answer. I don't think I have the answer, but it, it does sound like something that came up on FAQ on the message board this week where there was a there was a guy who he had a rehearsal space that they ended up using, but I don't know if it was for Sean to show them stage moves and stuff, but it was like a different rehearsal room that they used around 73 to work on their stage show, to work on their set. And somebody recently found the actual like address for it. And the, the guy that rented it out to him was a guy named Zeka who was in a, he wound up playing with a female rock artist named Cherry Vanilla in the seventies. And the funny thing about that is the backing band that Cherry Vanilla had on her European tour was uh, Stuart Copeland and Sting from the police. Wow. Wow. Yeah, That's there's a deep some police trivia right for you. There, Chris. You got a problem, huh? dude. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Yes. Oh. It's it's serious. I know who would probably know for sure the answer to that, Chris Epting. Oh yeah. He'd he'd be the person to ask. If anybody knew it'd be him. Man, I just speaking of him, I was watching something on Access TV the other night. I think it was about oh, it was about Janice Joplin and where she died. And I'm watching it, and all of a sudden there's Chris Epting on there. And he is taking you to the hotel room and showing you exactly how it happened. It was wild. Oh, yeah. Joe, you should definitely have him on Podcast Rock City. Yeah. Do you know who Chris Epting is? I do not. Oh, he did. Um, he's done a set, several books about like locations of rock and roll history. And uh, we had him on, we called it the Kiss GPS episodes. And we talked about all these different locations that he had tracked down in Kiss history. He's a great, he'd be a great guest for your show. I'm, I'm yeah. down. I'll, I'll have to get his connections. Right on. All right. So let's see. You got a few more left. Uh, I guess this one's addressed to Kiss themselves from John Morton. Why didn't you fire Peter before he ruined every show on the farewell <laughs> tour? <laughs> well john thank you for asking that question i, guess, um, uh, I can't answer commitment oh, no. with, commitment with a k baby you know that you uh, can't you know say hey it's the this is it the last chance to see the four of us together and not have one of them there or fire one of them partway through or before it starts i mean you kind of you know even if peter's not doing great and he's being kind of an asshole you don't really have too much of a choice because you're committed to deliver the original four members one last time, I think. Well, here, here's something that I never hear anybody bring up, okay? The situation that we're in right now where we have Eric Singer on the drums and Tommy Thayer on guitar is all with capital A, capital L, capital L, underline, 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 all Peter Chris's fault. Every bit of the arguing and the complaining that people do where we don't have the original band together, it's all because of Peter Chris. Because if he had just finished the tour, 
They would have never stuck Eric Singer in that makeup, gone overseas, noticed that just about nobody cared that he was in the makeup, and then Kiss would have been sitting at home one day and said, "Hey, let's get the band back together and let's not let's put somebody else in Ace's makeup and somebody else in Peter's makeup." This would have never happened if Peter just would have finished the tour. At least I believe Kiss would have never had that opportunity to go, "Oh, look at that! He came out and people applauded." Wow! Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I never really thought about uh, it from that angle before, but that makes so much sense. Yeah, they had the opportunity to try it in a few places. And they were big places. You're talking Japan, Australia too, I believe, right? Eric came out there. He played drums. And of course it was better. Of course the band was better. Of course the band was tighter. He's sitting back there and the people that didn't know that it was Peter Chris. (laughs) And so Paul said, Eric Singer, you know. So if Peter stayed in the band, I I think where they play like – Charlotte, North Carolina, or something like that. They played there. Peter's last show, he kicked the drums off the stage. He went and uh, didn't do the rest of the tour. Next thing you know, Eric Singer's wearing the makeup, and in the back of Kiss's head, they're going, hey, look at this. We could do this. And then at some point, they start looking at Ace and going, hey, this guy's kind of getting on my nerves a little bit. I wonder if we can do the same with him. And Gene Simmons is going, we could save a lot of money. Tommy, get dressed. Yeah. Well, you know, well, let's let's that, talk about it. that for a second. So, according to Ace, he didn't want to go back with the band. I think they asked him first because on that first tour back when they what was it rock was it rock the nation? I can't remember. But one of them with the one with Aerosmith, right? Yeah. Yeah. World dominating. Peter was playing drums, correct? Yep. With Tommy Thayer okay. on guitar, yeah. Right, so there's no way they didn't call Ace if they had Peter in the band. There's, right. I, I believe that Ace said that he didn't want to do it. He he took the the retirement as retirement, the farewell as farewell. Right. So, but still. Yeah, he must have been so pissed off when they turned around and said, okay, farewell tour's over, now we're going to go back out and do it some more. If he, if Ace really truly believed it the way, you know, it, it's easy enough to say nowadays, hey, we're retired, we're not touring no more, hey, rip up the contract, we're back, for a guy to actually really take it seriously and say, okay, this is the bookend to this, this is the end of KISS, it's over from here on forward, and I'm willing to let it go, and then to see your bandmates come back, you know, a year later and be like, hey, let's go back out, that's got to suck. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I'm not really sure how long it was between that, the farewell, and when they get when they went back on on tour. Wasn't it like three or four years, something like yeah, that? I think but it was a couple of years at least. Yeah, uh, but still. I but still, I get what you're saying. That makes complete and total sense. So here's and Kiss, uh, and I'm sorry, Kiss. Do you guys think that Kiss really seems to catch a lot of shit about their? Uh, farewell tour. Everybody goes, what is this, like your 10th farewell tour? And I'm right. like, Ozzy did farewell tours. The Cure did a farewell tour. Michael Jordan retired from basketball three times. You know, it's like, I always wonder why Kiss catches so much more crap than a lot of those other bands that do a farewell tour and then show back up. What was the name of this tour going to be for Ozzy? Didn't he have a specific name like, this is it, I promise, or some shit like that? Well, it was called No More Tours 2. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. What the hell? And nobody's sitting back and, you know, I, I, at least in the circles that I run with, because every, I go, oh, I'm seeing Kiss. Oh, is this their fifth farewell tour? No, they did one farewell tour. And a couple of years later, they came back. It's like, oh, God. All right. That, that, like was, to talk that was my bully pulpit. Kiss, no matter what, anyway. Yeah. They're an, easy, they're an easy target. That's my answer for that one. Yeah, it's true. All right. Nico Bergoa wants to know, do Ace and Peter return to Kiss for the final show or shows? Do you really want this to happen? I'll say no and no. Um, I'll say no, but yeah. Of course I'd love to see him. For one last show, those guys, Peter can play a show, I think. You know? Just give him plenty of heads up that it's happening. Like, get in shape. You got to do one last show. Ace goes up there, do one last show. Give Ace the closure that he was looking for so many years ago when he thought the farewell tour was actually the farewell tour. And give it to the fans one last time. You know, one last nostalgic moment of the real kiss. And then you guys can stream the video for 99 cents a minute or whatever you got to do to make it worth (laughs) your while. But, yeah, it'd be cool to see it one last time with the last four original members. But, damn it, you know, get in some rehearsals before it. You know, really do it upright. Take the time. Warm up those tapes. Whatever you got to do. Yeah, I was like, Paul Stanley's the X factor on that, for my reason for saying no on that. I think that they're going to do it. I don't think that they're going to do full show. I think that they're going to have Ace and Peter there and Bruce there and maybe even Vinny there and have them get on stage for a song or two songs or one song and rock and roll all night with every living member or um but I don't think a full show is going to happen. Peter will be 74 by then on his way to 75. And I went to New York to see him play his final, you know, live show in New York when he had that solo thing and he played just fine, but it was very limp wristed just the way you were talking about earlier. But I, I can't see them doing an entire show, but I definitely could see them being brought on, and and oh man, if he, if they don't wear their makeup, I'm not saying they have to wear the costumes, but if they don't wear their makeup, there'll be a riot. So yeah, and I don't think Ace Frilly, and I think he's made it pretty clear, he's not getting up on stage if Tommy Thayer's on the stage. He's not going to dr- stand next to Tommy Thayer in his full costume while Ace is just dressed like a mere mortal. And I always thought, you know, that sucks. How, how could Ace really do that? I'm not going to stand next to Gene and Paul when they're in full armor and I'm just a human being standing here with a guitar. I mean, it'll look ridiculous. Nobody standing next to Kiss ever looked cool because Kiss is... I'm talking about, like, when they're in their platforms, they got the whole deal on. With the exception of the cruises, nobody's ever stood next to Kiss and looked cool. Or not at least as cool as Kiss. No, that's true. And I and I have seen Ace and Tommy on stage together, but not in makeup. No, because uh, I don't think Ace would do it. I wouldn't do it if I was Ace Frehley. That's kind of a kind of kicking the nuts, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Okay, got just a few more. What 78 solo album songs would you have preferred to hear on the Dynasty tour instead of the songs they actually performed on that tour? Read mine after yours are revealed. That's from Eladio. Damn. Oh. Let's see. I'm uh, going to say 
Hold Me, Touch Me, I Can't Stop the Rain, When You Wish Upon a Star, and extended version of Fractured Mirror. What happened to you? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just kidding. I definitely go with uh, Speeding Back to My Baby, Tonight You Belong to Me, Hooked on Rock and Roll, and think about how cool a live version of Burning Up with Fever would be with just the guys in the band without all the background singers and stuff. They could probably really rock that one out. I'll tell you what, I, I like your choices. I'm going to steal. Yeah? That's yeah, I'm going I like with. those choices. Those are really good. I would do uh, It's All Right from Paul Stanley's record. I would do, uh, shoot, for Peter's Damn. record. Jesus, uh, that's a tough one. Maybe, I would probably do I Can't Stop the Rain. Yeah, I'll admit it. That would be, I would put that in place of Beth. For Ace, I would do Rip It Out. And for Gene, I would do Radioactive. Nice. Eladio went with Speeding Back to My Baby, Love in Chains, Hooked on Rock and Roll, and Man of a Thousand Faces. I think Radioactive was what they played, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah, you're right. Well, I would stick with Radioactive because I don't Me like Me too. Myself. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought besides, because Radioactive is the most hard rocking song on there. And, you know, you think, hey, the more hard rocking stuff for the live concert, right? Keep everybody excited. So, I mean, that was probably the best one. But I just thought, you know, Burn Up With Fever is kind of weird on the album, but I, in its yeah. basic form, if it was just you know two guitars, drums, and bass, I think that song would be pretty cool. I agree. All right. Here's another one that follows up with what we got going on with Kiss nowadays for at least the last many years. Why is everyone so much harder on Tommy than Eric? Mm. I think that goes back Eric- to a lot of things we already talked about today where, you know... I mean, Peter, I don't know. Eric, I think, is more of a part of the family. I think more people, like Joe said, people weren't that upset when Eric replaced Peter originally. But you go fucking with people's Ace Fraley, they're going to be pissed. Well, I think also Eric had already done a tenure in Kiss as himself. So I think he had already kind of built up a respect as a member of the band. Tommy just stepped into Ace's boots, and that made it a lot harder for him. Okay, now, I agree with what you guys are saying, but I, there's also something that we're forgetting. And it's one of those things that a lot of people don't know about. There was a damn wanted poster of Eric Singer. Do you guys remember that? I do. <laughs> okay, so you're talking about at the beginning on the tour, they, okay, so people didn't complain in Japan and Australia, but when they came, I, Shoot, I've been in an apartment with the wanted poster. As soon as the door opens, the wanted poster of Eric's. It looks like an old cowboy wanted poster with Eric Singer. Wanted for impersonating an icon, blah, 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 reward 5,000, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Wow. That I've never seen one of those of Tommy there now. Tommy catches shit, but a wanted poster? Mm, that's... <laughs> That's pretty. That's pretty deep. Somebody yeah, took the time. Was, yeah, there was some. There was some definite hate going on for Eric when it first happened. I remember a lot of bitching on the internet about it. Has Eric ever said? Did he ever have the conversation like when they come to him and say, "Hey, this is what we want to do"? Is he in any kind of position to say, "Hey, that's great. You know, I'm honored, but I mean." People are going to want to kill me, you know, and they're not going to like it. Wouldn't it be better for me to have my own thing so that, you know, people don't hate me so bad? I don't, 
I don't know if he's ever said anything about that. I think I viewed it from the fact that, and if you read between the lines with stuff that Bruce has said, that he was very pissed off when he lost the job in Kiss. And he might have viewed it as a revenge. I'm going to step back into the boots and I'm going to take the makeup. I don't give a shit. You know, it might have been one of those scenarios. I don't remember ever hearing him say anything about it. I mean, and then and then they go and did the symphony thing and they boot him out and bring Peter back in just so they can do it because the promoters wanted three members That's of the uh, original band in order to do it. It's like, man, it's just... I would it'd be like that girlfriend that just wants you today and not tomorrow. And we've all had that girl. Yeah, that sucks for him, you know, to be yeah. But that's weird that a promoter would be like, Nope, nope, you gotta have at least three. You'd think he'd be like all or nothing. Hey, I want all the original members if I'm paying this kind of cash for it, but to negotiate down to just at least three is kind of weird. Well, they were probably like, well, look what we did in Japan and Australia. We made it work with three then. You, yeah. you can do it now. You know, in that, yeah. time, that time we did see him on the uh, the tour with Aerosmith, and it was the first time that I'd seen Tommy Thayer in Kiss and not Ace Frehley for many years before that. And it was like they didn't say nothing at first, you know. Of course, they don't come right out and be like, hey, just want to let everybody know tonight this is an Ace Frehley. Of course, they're not going to do that, but... You know, most of them people had no idea, you know, and to me, it kind of upset me a little bit. It was like, oh, man, this then at that point, it becomes like a farce. You know, it's like, hey, you're trying to pass this off as something that it ain't. And some of these poor suckers don't know no better. You know, so I was kind of upset. I wanted to yell at people. Hey, that's not Ace Fraley. I mean, I didn't really do that. Maybe a little. (laughs) (laughs) Hold up a sign. Yeah. That's you know, not ace. Somebody needs to let these people know that they're being, you know, deceived right now. And I remember just kind of being upset about that because it's like, man, there should be a disclaimer. If it's if people are coming here to see Ace Fraley, you know, they should know that he's not here. Right. Yeah. But that's me. I'm weird. I'm an Ace Fraley weirdo, so I don't know. <laughs> oh man. All right. What are your favorite kiss covers by others? I love it when a band does a cover of Kiss. Anthrax is always good for a good Kiss cover. Yeah, yeah. Anthrax and Skid Row, I think, always did the yeah. best. Yeah. Um, I was looking at some because I was like, oh, let me pull out some of these tribute CDs I got. So I got the, uh, everybody's got this one, the Kiss My Ass, the official Kiss tribute's got Anthrax doing She on it. Another one's I always liked off of there, and this was like, actually got me to check out these bands was Dinosaur Jr. doing Going Blind and the Lemonheads yeah. doing Plaster Caster. Yeah, I like both of those. I always liked, um, there's one, I think it was one of the Bob Kulik tribute CDs, the, the Spin the Bottle, I think, it had Mark Slaughter doing I Want You. I thought that was yeah. a great one. That's uh, the Spin the Bottle tribute. Yeah. My favorite one off there is uh, Chris Jericho and Chris Ward with Mike Inez and Fred Corey doing King of the Nighttime World is pretty that, badass. That's a killer cover. Yeah. Um, some some other ones I like off the uh, Return of the Comet CD, you got Dime and Vinny doing Snowblind together, mm-hmm. which is badass. Eric Singer doing vocals for Strange Ways, which, speaking of the Eric Singer, that's, that's always pretty cool. I like that. And uh, Lee McCormick is on that Return of the Comics CD doing a cover of Speeding Back to My Baby. And it's a trip. It's, a, it's not what you expect it to be, but Lee McCormick's on there. Good old Lee McCormick. Good old Lee. 
Um, let's see. I got this weird one called Millennium Lick It Up Millennium Tribute to Kiss. And it's a whole bunch of bands I never heard of, and most of the CD aren't even Kiss covers. But Chris and I met Chuck Bonnet at the NAM. was it a year ago, two years ago? Yeah. And well, he, does, he does a country version of Let's Put the X and Sex on there. And it's crazy to think how that song really lends itself to being a country song. And it's actually pretty damn cool. <laughs> I have to check that one. I haven't even heard that one myself. No, it's cool. I'll send that to you. Um, I know. I think my favorite Kiss tribute album was Mitch LaFon's World with Heroes. Yeah. Had a, a ton one. of cool shit on there. Uh, L.A. Guns doing Master and Slave. And uh, I think one of my favorites off there was Brighton Rock's cover of Creatures of the Night, where they yep. slow it way down and make it really spooky. That was a great one, too. I love they reimagined the whole thing. Yeah. What do you guys got? You got any favorite covers that we haven't covered? I like uh, Motorhead's cover of Shout It Out Loud. Yeah, yeah that's very Lemmy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like Hair of the Dog's cover of I. Yeah. That's a good one. There's a lot of great ones out there. Galactic Cowboys, I I Want You is pretty badass. Yeah, there's like 643,000 Kiss tribute CDs. But I always seem to go back to Skid Row and Anthrax. they just such big fans. And the the Chris Jericho thing was really good, too. Wasn't there a... uh, I got one on that record with Kip Winger as well, I think. Yeah. Um, Let's see. I got it right here. What does Kip do on here? Oh, Mark Slaughter does Cold Gin. Oh, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. I uh, got D. Schneider on here singing Detroit Rock City. Kip Winger does I Want You, along with Paul Gilbert and Greg Bissonette. Yeah, that's good stuff right there. That's a great one. Have you ever heard the uh, the one with uh, the band called Sun, S-U-N? It was Fast Jordan and Brian Tishy doing I Stole Your Love. Oh, yeah. I think that's, I have not. That's on the uh, World with Heroes thing, I think. Yeah, they they like they changed the time signature on it. Yeah. It sounds really cool. That's how that Lee McCormick song is too, with speeding back to my baby off that tribute. That's really cool. Um, let's see what else. I like uh oh, Ace Fraley's cover of Rock and Roll Hell. <laughs> That's my favorite. He's not sure if he played on it or not. <laughs> so he made double <laughs> sure. So when people ask him if he played on it, he can now say, Well yeah, it was on my album. I was just looking for see like are there any I missed you know because I always think about like the Soundgarden cover they do a cover of a Kiss song it's really good the Foo Fighters cover a song off the Ace Frehley solo album which I always thought that was pretty badass but I was checking out a website called secondhandsongs.com and according to them what do you think is the number one covered Kiss song? Rock and roll all night I'm I was made for loving you You're correct because they think about it all like the dance artists that have sampled it and covered it they had it listed at 71 different covers that bands have done of I Was Made for Loving You and Rock and Roll All Night was in second place with like 43 or something wow. like that. But yeah, it's because it's, a, it's all the- so popular with dance artists. Didn't Menudo do one? I think Menudo did I Was Made for Loving You. I wouldn't be surprised. Probably worked, <laughs> probably worked if for did, them. If they did, I have zero interest in hearing it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we got one, one last. We got one last question. And we, wait, wait, hold on. This question you can just not do. Let's not do that one. 
We have oh, to do that. You, oh, yeah, that's right. You got access. You're looking at them, too. Well, we got to do it because it comes to us from sunny Hollywood. Oh, God. And he wants to know, why isn't Asylum Joe's favorite album? I, I saw that question. I was like, geez, this guy. <laughs> it's it's almost like when somebody asks you who's the man and who's the woman of the podcast, I guess, huh? Yeah, I'm, I'm always the woman. Um, I love Kiss Asylum. I have such an amazing special spot in my history and my heart for that. I, I didn't expect to get it. My mom, we had just moved here to Georgia. Um, there wasn't a lot of money. Somehow my mom still wound up scrounging it together and, and get me the record. I remember putting it on and hearing the beginning of King of the Mountain and being blown away. Then they were coming to Atlanta. They were going to play New Year's Eve at the Omni. And my mom got me tickets and did not take me, sent me with my cousin. Nice. But still, it was awesome. So that whole tour, I mean, who opened? Black and Blue. So I got to see Tommy Thayer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Kiss played late. You know, they played till, they played till after midnight. Um, they did some Zeppelin. They wow. did, I think, uh, All Susanna. They did, I mean, they did all, they did a whole bunch of stuff. And so that, so Asylum, I have such great memories of that, but, but I, you know, I, I wasn't late to the party like that Hollywood guy was. I was, so when, when I came into it, it was like Love Gun and you put those records on to me and those are the best records. So I'm sorry to disappoint your listener. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Just blast some anything for my baby and you'll feel all better. Oh my goodness. I lost a bet in Las Vegas and had to sing that live on the internet. It was terrible. I was watching. It was great. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> and one thing I'll always say about Asylum is the look never really matched the music for me, and I think the look kind of hurts the people wanting to give Asylum a chance. You know that, you know, with the controversy with with Kiss and the makeup, you know it started on that album, right? You know it started with Asylum because you had Bruce with the blue lips and you had uh, Eric with the green lips. Yeah. You know that they they caught a lot of crap for that too. Why would you give them, you know, Peter's color and and Ace's color? That's not Peter and Ace and See, that I should remember, have been the litmus yeah. test for what they did later. They're like, no, no, remember what happened to us when we painted just the lips on those other guys on one album <laughs> cover? We can't yeah. do this. You are a hawk, and you are a badger, and that's final. A badger? Or something. Ah, Whatever. That's awesome. A possum, yeah. You hang them <laughs> upside down from the stage. All right, awesome. Well, that's the end of our kiss questions. So you know what that means. Are you guys ready to play my rock and roll game show? I'm ready. We know the rules from last week. We know how it's played. I've got 11 questions lined up. Oh, shit. These are going to be pretty awesome. Chris, last week, defeated Ian Wadley, and so he is our current reigning champion, so he will begin. Are you guys ready to play the game? I'm ready to lose, yes. I'm going to lose worse than however. How did Ian do? He got his ass kicked. I'm about to, to get my ass kicked and bruised. Well, I host a KISS podcast, but I choke. Not I choke on these things, uh, and no pun intended. And I, on my own show, I've won one thing, and it was not trivia. So, and we've and we've had forty game shows. So, 
God bless it. Pooney should have been on this. Well, maybe he'll get a chance later. <laughs> but, you know, I make it so you guys, you still have a chance. Even if you you don't know, you still can kind of, like Chris did last week, he, like, guessed three in a row and nailed them all. So all right. if we're ready to go, I've got the questions right here. Chris, you're up first. Do not answer until you're asked. Number one, in 1985, this corporation purchased the rights to the Y&T song, She's a Liar, for use in commercials and promotions. So now, Chris, before you answer that or get the choices to choose from, Joe, I got to ask you, you going to bet against him? Do you think he knows it? I bet he knows it. Okay, I actually almost forgot. I got to get a piece of paper and keep track of score here. So Joe will not bet against Chris. Chris, your choices are Dr. Pepper, L'Oreal, Wendy's, or Chrysler. The answer is Dr. Pepper. That is correct. Oh, jeez. I'm so screwed. So Chris, you get one point since Joe did not bet against you. And Joe, that means now it's your turn. On Christmas Day in 1991, Glenn Hughes suffered a heart attack while engaging in what activity? Chris, do you think Joe knows what gave Glenn Hughes a heart attack in 1991? I'll bet against him. Good guess. I'm going to have to guess. All right, let's go. All right, here are your choices. Skydiving, performing live, smoking crack, or fly fishing? On when was this? New Year's Eve? Christmas Day, nineteen ninety one. I'm gonna go with fly fishing. You're gonna go with fly fishing? Yes. That is incorrect. Son of a bitch. Glenn Hughes was smoking crack on Christmas Day in nineteen ninety one, gave himself a heart attack. Changed wow. his life for the better. I didn't want to say smoking crack because if I would have said smoking crack, people would have been like, what do you think? Oh, man, this is, oh, God. So, Chris, did, <sighs> did you bet against him? He did. I did. So now Chris gets the point. So now it's 2 nothing, Chris. I'm going to get shut out. All right. So, Chris, it's your turn. Alice Cooper excelled in this sport in high school. Ugh. Joe, do you think Chris knows it? Yes. If I know it, he knows it. Okay. <laughs> the choices are golf, football, swimming, or cross country. The answer is cross country. That is correct. And I didn't know it. <laughs> you didn't know it? You thought it was golf, didn't you? Yes. That's why I put golf in there as a choice to kind of throw things off. Should have yes. known Chris would know that one. He became a golfer after he became a sober Christian. That's right. That's correct. All right. That means you're up, Joe. Okay. Juan, <laughs> Juan Crucier has been a member of all the following bands, except there's four choices. Chris, do you think Joe knows it? I'm going to say he does know this one. Okay. God bless. All right. Bass player. I'm going to get a point here. Crucier. Choices are rat. Wasp, Dockin', and Quiet Riot. He, okay, so one of these bands he's not been a member of. Right, the other three he has. Rat, Wasp, Dockin', and Quiet Riot. Damn. 
I'm going to go with... Oh, shit. So, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying. I'm, it's really tough between Doc, <laughs> between Dokken and Wasp. I'm going to go with the one he was not in was Wasp. That is correct. You are on oh. the board with a point. And Chris believed in you, so you just get one. That's all right. All I right. couldn't see but him, but it's not bad because he's only up three to one now. So you're not out of this by any means. We're only on All question right. number five. All right, All right, Chris, it's your question. Nirvana's 1991 breakthrough album Nevermind was produced by Butch Vig. Butch was also the drummer for this band. Joe, do you think Chris knows the answer to this question? Yes. Okay, he's not betting against you, Chris. Your choices are Helmet, the Goo Goo Dolls, Garbage, and Sonic Youth. The answer is Garbage. That is correct. Chris scores another point, bringing the score 4-1. to one. Story of my life. All <laughs> right, it's not too late. Here's what I hope you get. It's your question, Joe. Led Zeppelin drummer John Bonham died of aspiration of vomit after drinking 40 shots of... Chris, do you think Joe knows the shit that killed John Bonham? (laughs) I'm going to say he doesn't know this one. Okay, so Chris is betting against you this time. All right. Joe, your choices are vodka, whiskey, tequila, or absinthe. John Bonham drank 40 shots of this, and it killed him. Man, 40 shots of absinthe, that's got to be a fake. So I'm going to go with, you know what, though? He was a nut, wasn't he? But 40 shots. 40 shots of any of this stuff would kill you. But which one? No, that's true. Say them again. Vodka, whiskey, tequila, absinthe. I'm going with absinthe. (sighs) That's incorrect, Joe. God, suck a dick! Sorry. <laughs> he drank 40 shots of vodka. Vodka? God, man. I, I, was, I would have said tequila. I didn't know what it was. All right, so Chris <gasps> Chris got it wrong. You, you got it wrong. Ha, ha, ha. But Chris still gets a point because he bet against you. Whatever. I don't care. He didn't know the answer to that one. <laughs> makes me happy. <laughs> oh. Did you hear that sound? No, of course you didn't hear it because I have to edit it in later. But if you had heard it, you'd know that it's time for the kiss round. And that's double points. This is the one where I lose a bunch of listeners because they're like, this guy doesn't know shit about kiss. All right. Well, we're about to find out. Chris had come to me and like, hey, why not do a special kiss one? And I was like, because you guys know everything and that's not going to be any fun. So oh, I, no. I kind of dug to find some hard questions for you kiss nerds. And so hopefully these are the ones. So let's see. Joe, you just had the last question. And so Chris will get the first question in the kiss round. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. In the film, Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park. The actor portraying the MC judging the Kiss lookalike makeup contest is famous Los Angeles radio personality. Joe, does Chris know who played that role? I need points, so I'm going to go with no. All right, Chris, he's betting against you. Your choices are Rick Dees, 
Don Steele, Junior Bruce, or Charlie Caddo? The answer is the real Don Steele. The real Don Steele. That is the correct answer. And since of course Joe bet it's the right you, answer. And you got it right. That's two points. Oh, boy. Okay. Nope. Not looking Don't good. Don't say, oh, boy. That, you're making me feel bad. Not looking good, <laughs> Joe. <laughs> but you still got a chance because this is only question number eight. I mean, you, you could walk the rest of this and get all kinds of points. It'd be a squeaker, but you could still somehow miraculously pull this off. So okay. let me ask you. Thank you for being kiss. so positive. <laughs> Trying. <laughs> Hey, somebody's got to try to keep this show interesting. Um, <laughs> all right, here's your kiss round question. Bruce Gowers directed the music video for Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, as well as videos for the Rolling Stones, Michael Jackson, Blondie, and Prince. But which two videos did he direct for Kiss? Chris, you going to bet against Joe on this one? Mm, yeah, I'll bet against him. All right, Joe, here are your choices. I was made for loving you and sure know something. A world without heroes and I. Heaven's on fire and thrills in the night. Or lick it up and all hell's breaking loose. Uh, I'm going to go with lick it up and all hell's breaking loose. I'm sorry, Joe. Of course. That's incorrect. Chris, you know the answer? Yeah, it was uh, I in a World Without Heroes. That's right. He, Bruce Gowers directed the videos off the Elder song. So you got it wrong, and Chris bet against you, so Chris gets the point. That brings us up to 8-1. to one. <laughs> I See, what you guys didn't know is I am trying my hardest not to score points so I can have the record. Oh, for biggest loser well joe so far so good my man all right <laughs> it's awesome hey it's not my fault that i own julian gill's elder book that's the only reason i knew that one. Oh, i should have thought of that because that's where i got it from damn it that's okay that's oh, how he gets his knowledge it's all right a, what a perfect place to get a kiss trivia question that i'm sure chris and joe have probably already read this book but fuck it all right, let's see who's up now. So, Joe, that was your question. So now we're back to the regular questions. And, oh, wait a minute, Chris, you get an extra point for that because that was the kiss round. I almost forgot. That, that makes it even worse. <laughs> 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 All right, so here we go. Chris, your question. Who was the highest paid performer at the original Woodstock Festival in 1969? Joe, you want to bet against them? You probably should by this point. Okay, yes. Okay. Chris, your choices are The Who, Jefferson Airplane, Janis Joplin, or Jimi Hendrix? That's actually a tough one. Uh-huh. Um, I'll just guess. I'll say The Who. That is incorrect. <gasps> Joe, you're getting a point here, baby. Jimi Hendrix was actually the highest paid performer at Woodstock. He got paid $18,000. Yay for me. Which was big money back then. All right. You keep betting against them. You might have a shot here. Not really. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) I just have more than one now. All right. Two questions left. And this one goes to you, Joe. Weezer's first show was in Los Angeles in 1992, supporting the band Dog Star. 
which featured this famous actor on bass. Chris, do you think Joe knows his Hollywood? I'm going to say he'll know this one. Oh, damn it. All right, Joe. The band was Dogwood. This person's on bass guitar. Is it Johnny Depp, Charlie Sheen, Keanu Reeves, or Ethan Hawke? Um, I'm going to go with Johnny Depp. Ah, sorry, Joe. Was it Ethan Hawke? Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Keanu Reeves. <laughs> so nobody gets a point since Chris didn't bet. Ha ha. And we've got question number 11, and this is the I'm final one. I'm a sore one. loser. I'm sorry. And it goes to the man who is still probably going to be reigning champion. No doubt about it. Did you use the word probably here? Ah, no, I take it back. He will be reigning champion at the end of this. I knew before we got started. Well, you know what? This show goes to 11, so nothing's over until this question's over. So the final question of this week's rock and roll game show goes to the standing champion, Chris Sinzak. 2011's Glamageddon Tour was co-headlined by all of the following bands except... Joe, you want to bet against them? Yes. Okay. Your choices, Chris, are Motley Crue, Faster Pussycat, New York Dolls, and Poison. Uh, I'll say the, this is the one that did not play it. Yeah, the one that did not play it. The other three did. Uh, I'd say Motley Crue. It's incorrect. The tour, the Glamageddon yes. tour in 2011 was actually Motley Crue, New York Dolls, and Poison, not Faster Pussycat. <laughs> Joe gets a point. Therefore, Joe, I can't give you congratulations because you actually beat Ian Wadley by one point. Oh, I did? However, you still lost Chris Sinzak 9-3. to three. Jesus. But, so, and if you think about it, two of my points came from Chris not knowing the answers <laughs> to his questions. I'm glad I could help you. That's Thank what, you. That's what you get for believing in Joe. That's <laughs> true. All right. It's like holy crap! The man, we gotta put, we gotta have a, gotta. All right, man. I, you know what? Th- congratulations, Chris. Thank you. Uh, of course, on my show, I- I'm recording my show in about 20 minutes, and I will make the announcement that you destroyed me, um, <laughs> our, and that everybody needs to come and listen to the uh, new Decibel Geek episode. Or actually, maybe you should just tease it and not say who won because this one won't be out for a couple of days yet. Don't be spoiling uh, it. Okay, okay, okay. Tell Hollywood I want to take him on next. Man, he's a wuss, isn't he? Have, yeah. have you already tried to have him on? Not yet. Not for yep. the game show. You're only okay, the then, second guy. Okay, then he's not a wuss. I take that back. I thought he was dodging you. He might be. No, not I, I did it. I did After last week, I put show. out. I said, "Hey, if anybody thinks they got what it takes to challenge Chris Sinzak, just step on up." And you know how many responses we got to that? Zero. That's Nobody. because they listened to the show where Ian got destroyed. Even more reason to try to dethrone this man. Yeah, I agree. It should be interesting. I, it, it would be pretty cool if nobody ever beat him. It would be pretty wild. Well, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to get on the phone with Hollywood, and he's going to be the next guy. All right. Well, you tell Hollywood, challenge accepted, and we'll see him right here on the Decibel Geek Podcast next week. Absolutely. Hey, I love you guys. I want you to know that I miss you. Um, 
there there's uh, some at some point this year i will make my way up to tennessee so i could see you guys oh we'd love to have you man even if we all got to wear masks yeah and body condoms then if we have to wear masks then aaron and my makeout sessions won't be the same but they'll be awesome (laughs) (laughs) how much of the shit i say gets edited out of this show we will find out that's why I keep thinking, damn it, Joe, I'm trying to make this an easy edit. <laughs> no, but one of the one of the very best parties I ever been to in my life was down at your place when we came down for the KISS convention deal down in Atlanta a few years ago. And and I'm I'm such a huge fan of yours and you know, you're such a cool guy to be around. I really appreciate you coming on and trying to dethrone Chris anyway and sharing some of your KISS love and knowledge with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. And I, that party was amazing. And yet I, and if you remember, I wasn't there until late because I was waiting on that certain somebody that I wanted to meet that I, anyway, and you, you still have your kiss cookie. Yes, I do. I gets here in the studio. I got it up on the shelf. I never took it out of the plastic. That's all. It's funny. It's sitting right. That's all Karen. It's sitting right next to a, uh, uh, Brian head Welsh cookie that i got <laughs> chris you nice. that one i do but yeah i forgot about it until you brought it up <laughs> i've got two cookies in plastic here on my memorabilia shelf in the studio so that is awesome ones. well thanks again joe we really appreciate it i know you got to get to your show next well yeah uh, thank you guys for having me on it's an honor beyond everybody should be this lucky to come on this show it's wonderful oh thank you even when you trick me into believing that you're interviewing people you're not April Fool's Hell yeah it was I was a sucker
black and so I opened up the door She wore her hat shades and her trench coat Wasn't wearing that much more She said she knew my secrets But I didn't have a clue Then I saw those black lace panties And I knew that it was you Baby, let's put the X in sex Love's like a muscle And you make me wanna flex Baby, let's put the X in sex It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 